This is Africa Digest. It is 1900 hours Central African time right here in Africa Digest on China Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good evening. Welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi. You can find us on frequency 15235 kHz on the 31-meter band if you're in West Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am with Onel Nzinti with Cinema Tebula and Adachamane. Your top stories. Somalis prepare for a crucial presidential election tomorrow. Kenyan authorities urged to work with doctors for a solution to the strike in economics. Uganda's economy expected to expand by 5.2% in the fiscal year 2017 and 2018. And in sport, the fourth ODI between South Africa and Sri Lanka underway in Cape Town. Here's Onelenzinzi. Thank you, Spoo. Now we take a look at your latest news. Chadian President Idris Deby has warned that Africa's Sahel region risks becoming a space for terrorists unless immediate coordinated action is taken. The warning comes as the area's leaders gathered for security talks in the Malayan capital. Commissioner for Peace and Security Ambassador Smile Chigui. So I want to pay tribute to uh, Nigeria to Niger, to Chad, uh, to uh, Cameroon and Benin for this uh, contribution. Uh, it's also, uh, in a way, uh, a, rapid, uh, a rapid reaction force created by these countries, which is bringing uh, its results. It is mainly based on the resources of African these countries. So we have got some help from uh, partners but I don't think it is enough. So if we consider that terrorism is really a global threat, I think we need additional support from uh, our partners and the UN uh, to achieve this common goal. Witnesses say soldiers have opened fire in the southeast Kodovo's town of Arieke in a continuation of unrest that began a month ago. On January 6, soldiers in the city of Abuka staged a mutiny over unpaid bonuses and other grievances, firing weapons into the air and blocking main roads. Though they wish to deal with the government, other soldiers and other elements of the security forces have since sought payoffs of their own. The Somali capital city of Mogadishu is currently on lockdown as the Horn of Africa's nation finalizes its preparations for Wednesday's crucial presidential elections. 23 candidates will be contesting the highly anticipated election, including incumbent President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, according to a journalist based in Somalia. Abidasi Ahmed. Security has been tightened around the capital ahead of the polls. The election is hours away and uh, there is a total lockdown of the city, the main city of Somalia, the capital of this show. There are no traffic, there are no cars uh, moving by, there is a barricade by the, by, the, by the military and by the uh, national security forces and the police are deployed every corner of the, of the city uh, and the movements of the people are, are very much restricted. Uh, the streets and the highways are very empty. There is only officially designated uh, vehicles moving around, 
and uh, everybody's checked. Malawi and its northern neighbor Tanzania have agreed to revive talks to resolve the long-running border disputes. The two East African neighbors are at odds over the ownership of Lake Malawi, which straddles both countries with Tanzania claiming the top half of Africa's third largest freshwater lake. President Peter Motareka met Tanzania's foreign minister in Lilongwe today and agreed to revive talks. Tanzania insists that half the lake falls within its borders and blames maps drawn up by British and German authorities for the dispute. Lastly, Nigeria's acting president, Yemi Osibanjo, maintains that President Muhammadu Buhari is in good shape, following reports that the leader had extended his stay in London for health reasons. The announcement of Buhari's prolonged stay has triggered fresh speculations about the state of his health, leaving little to convince an already skeptical public that there is no con- cause of concern. In a statement, his government says the president has asked for extended medical leave to complete and receive the results of the tests. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelint Inzi. Thanks very much, Onele. It's 1905 Central African time. Now, Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, is on high alert as the troubled Horn of Africa nation prepares for the crucial presidential election tomorrow. 23 candidates will be contesting the highly anticipated election, including incumbent President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. Channel Africa reporter Kumbero Mujarare has compiled this report. Tomorrow's historic election will draw down the curtains on a grueling electoral process that began in October 2016 after months of delays. 275 members of parliament of the lower house and 54 senators of the upper house will elect a new president through a secret ballot. The ballot was initially scheduled to take place at the police headquarters in the capital Mogadishu, but the venue has been moved from the police headquarters to inside the Mogadishu airport because of concerns about security and possible corruption. As Somalia's national news agency journalist Abdinasir Ahmed explains, the capital city is on lockdown ahead of the crucial polls. The election is just hours away and uh, there is a total lockdown of the city, the main city of Somalia, the capital Mogadishu. There are no traffic, there are no cars. Uh, moving by the barricades by the by the by the military and by the uh, national security forces and the police are deployed every corner of the of the city uh, and the movements of the people are, are very much restricted. Uh, the streets and the highways are very empty. There is only officially designated vehicles uh, moving around and uh, everybody's checked and uh, the only airports operating uh, today but tomorrow there will lobby flights and uh, it will be a total lockdown and that's the situation and people are very much uh, will be staying in their homes watching the proceedings and the election reporting from the tv sets uh, on their in their homes and will be flowing on social media and uh, from the radio stations that's how things are here in Mogadishu and Bibo are very much anticipating the, the election of the president. Abdinasir says despite the hype around the polls, many Somalis are not that optimistic about the future. Bibo 
uh, very much concerned about uh, how things will be according, uh, accordingly. And uh, some, uh, I spoke to some of the people. They said uh, whoever uh, the president, whoever gets elected, uh, the things will not change soon. Uh, but they, in the in the Eastwick, they are uh, uh, pill polls and the uh, election promises. Uh, and there is even a presidential debate for the first time in Somali which took place yesterday you know, on, the, on, on national TV and the other TV network. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the ordinary people are not voting. And they will tell you this is not our, uh, some of the people tells you this is not our, our election because we are not voting. It's only a, a political agreement and uh, they, some of them call, uh, uh, call it as a negotiated democracy. 24 candidates will be contesting the election and amongst them is incumbent Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud who has vowed to focus on establishing security and political stability if parliament gives him another term. The newly elected president will be installed immediately after the announcement of the final results. The candidates have been making speeches before the members of parliament to explain their plans for the future of Somalia. Most criticized the current president accusing him of failing to stop attacks carried out by Somali-based extremist group Al-Shabaab. The successful completion of tomorrow's election will be a key determinant of Somalia's path to universal suffrage in the year 2020. Somalia is ranked the most corrupt country on earth by Transparency International, a global civil society organization leading the fight against corruption, and it is one of the seven countries under U.S. President Donald Trump. Trump's controversial travel ban. The country has launched from crisis to crisis since 1991 when the central government disintegrated. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbaro Munjerere in Johannesburg. Human Rights Watch says the Kenyan government should work with doctors for a solution to the strike that began on December 5 in 2016. The Rights Watch doc says that the government is not making efforts to end the stalemate, yet patients were suffering and dying. It's estimated that 40 people have died since government doctors began a strike two months ago to demand a promised pay raise. Doctors are demanding a 300% pay increase from the Ministry of Health. There are thousands of patients who rely on uh, public facilities have uh, been forced to seek treatment elsewhere. Regardless, the doctors have affirmed that they won't go back to work until their grievances are addressed. Audrey Webwire of Human Rights Watch tells us more. From what we've observed, the doctors feel that there's no political goodwill to end the strike because these are not new issues that they're bringing to the table. They are talking about an agreement that was signed in 2013 and uh, the strike right now is a demand being brought to the government to implement what had already been agreed upon. On the other hand, um, the government through the, the Senate Health Committee says that the agreement is illegal and it says it's illegal for many different reasons, that it was signed by someone who had been demoted. It was signed at the national level, yet some elements of the health sector had been devolved to county government. So the government says it cannot work with an illegal document, although this was only brought up um, when the doctors went on strike. On the other hand, it is difficult to follow what effort the government is trying to put in actually ending the strike with all this discussion on saying that the CBA is illegal. However, the, the doctors say that 
they are willing to compromise should the government do the same. So hopefully we should see some talks progressing. Okay, compromise in which way? They did not give any specifics when they spoke today, but they are ready to talk. This is what they're saying. They're saying they're ready to talk. They're ready to sit down and negotiate if the government is willing to do the same, to listen to them and uh, to come to an agreement on how the agreement from 2013 can now be implemented. But now has the government um, expressed any willingness after what the doctors have said to come to the table and resume negotiations? Well, this was just said this morning. This is a development from this morning and this afternoon. I know they are sitting together, not particularly for talks, but to speak about this strike. So we are going to see what comes off from that. It's not something really I can comment on because the issues are unfolding at the top right now. But now, this strike, you know, it doesn't seem to be only a question of the pay hike. Doctors have also accused the government of, you know, failing to improve health facilities in public hospitals and including better working conditions for themselves. Can you elaborate on this? Yes, the collective uh, bargaining agreement which was signed between the government and the doctors in 2013 highlighted several issues that were of concern to the doctors. Some of them were to do with the working conditions of doctors. They felt that they were working for too long hours, they were working in very poor conditions, and so they wanted the government to look into this and to structure how they work, and also to staff them better so that there are enough doctors per health facility, and also look at their pay, look at their training and uh, research, and actually put up a fund for research so that the quality of healthcare, of public healthcare in Kenya can improve. Many Kenyans, when we get very sick, when we feel that I'm not receiving the best healthcare, many people, the solution that we come up to is to leave and go to seek treatment elsewhere in India, in South Africa, in Europe, in the US. And the doctors are saying that if hospitals in Kenya are better equipped, if the doctors are better trained, if there is fund for research, this will not be necessary. And healthcare will be affordable to more Kenyans because um, public healthcare is um, free to some extent. So if conditions are improved for the doctors, if facilities are improved, it will be better for all Kenyans in the long run. That is Audrey Weber, who is with Human Rights Watch, talking to Jose Khotengake. Audrey is in Nairobi in Kenya. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Your time is 19.15 Central African time right here in Africa. Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Chadian President Idris Deby has warned that Africa's Sahel region risks becoming a space for terrorists unless immediate coordinated action is taken. The warning came as the area's leaders yesterday gathered for security talks in the Malian capital. The presidents of Chad, Burkina Faso, Mali, Mauritania and Niger met in Mali's capital, Bamako to discuss the region's perilous security situation where attacks mounted to jihadists and armed groups are on the rise and increasingly targeting civilians. President Deby says the region has over the last few months witnessed a multiplication in terrorist attacks in the Sahel. He says these attacks are a reminder of the urgency of their fight. Around 3,500 troops are currently stationed in the Sahel with the mandate to secure the vast large desert area in the face of an increasingly nimble array of Islamist groups, some aligned with Al-Qaeda. Mali itself is frequently hit. More than 70 people died in a suicide bombing last month, targeting militia groups committed to restoring peace in the African country, the worst such attack in years. Speaking on the sidelines of the recent African Union summit, the Commissioner for Peace and Security, Ambassador Smil Chegui, paid tribute to the troops. So I want to pay tribute to uh, Nigeria, to Niger, to Chad, uh, to uh, Cameroon and Benin for this uh, contribution, uh, it's also uh, in a way uh, a, rapid, uh, a rapid reaction force created by these countries, which is bringing uh, its results. It is mainly based on the resources of African these countries. So we have got some help from uh, partners, but I don't think it is enough. So if we consider that terrorism is really a global threat, I think we need additional support from uh, our partners and the UN uh, to achieve this common goal. He says the situation in the north of Mali is also a cause for concern. You have also witnessed the last attack in Gao. It was in fact a direct attack on the peace agreement there because one of the provisions of the agreement is to establish a special unit for security which are composed both from the Tuareg, the former combatant, and the army itself, just to show that they are working hand in hand to secure the country. So while they, are, they have been the grouping there to uh, really compose those units, we have that uh, terrible attack. So this is to say that uh, the plight of terrorism in North Mali is becoming also a very serious matter, which goes even over Mali because it hits also the uh, countries of the region. Chad and Niger are currently battling the Nigerian Islamist group Boko Haram, while jihadists struck a hotel in the capital of Burkina Faso in January last year. Mauritania was once plagued by Islamist attacks within its borders, but has made significant security gains. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glandlamasangu in Johannesburg. The investing in Africa mining Indaba, currently underway in Cape Town, South Africa, has been at the center of a number of calls to rectify the so-called injustices in the sector. Earlier this morning, human rights organization Songa Gender Justice facilitated a press conference where former mine workers and their families who are affected by fatal lung disease, silicosis, shared their stories. The families are reportedly still waiting for due 
what's due to them as a result of industry failure to protect them from the preventable disease. More from Tabang Bowe, Policy and Development Fellow at Songke Gender Justice. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is the part 19- of the late 70s has been employed for decades in the gold mining industry. And because they've been working in the industry for so prior to any proper regulation and health regulation in mind, they contracted silicosis from inhaling silica dust. Um, upon them being really sick from silicosis, they were then dismissed from employment and sent home basically to die. So these families have then had to take on the responsibility of taking care of their sick family members, paying the medical costs with very little assistance and compensation from gold mines. Now tell us about this morning's gathering, Tabango. What was the objective of holding this press conference and how did it go? The objective of it was giving a platform for families to talk about the effects of mining and silicosis, the real effects. Um, you'll remember that the mining in Daba is happening this week in Cape Town where people are discussing the investment opportunities in mining and really how wonderful mining is as an avenue for boosting the economy, an avenue for you know development. And what we're saying is that behind all of that, they're real investors. They're these women who birthed, raised young boys and men and they went off to look at the mines and now coming back sick and dying have to mm. take care of them. Mm. Um, and so we're saying that alongside the story of development and investment potential is the real cost of mining in South Africa, particularly gold mining. Mm. And people should know how people are affected by silicosis in the mining industry. Now, obviously, this uh, silicosis is uh, um, extremely dangerous. Um, and uh, these uh, uh, fathers of these families have to deal with uh, what comes with it. Why have these families uh, not been compensated at this stage? What has been the reason behind that? And how are other mine workers, you know, who are still at work protected from facing a similar fate? The compensation framework um, in the past has been really terrible. We know that about 1% of compensation claims have been settled. The rest have been unsuccessful, which means that even where there is an avenue to seek compensation, that hasn't been one that's accessible to a lot of people. The second thing is that even where the claims for compensation have been successful, they haven't have been able to give people enough money. For example, we have one of our clients who has worked in the mining industry, gold mining industry for over 40 years and received around 39000 in compensation. Um, remember that he's now unable to seek any other type of employment and is basically dealt with death sentence in that silicosis will gradually 
deal with lungs and so he's unable to mm. use them and eventually die. Mm. And so if that cannot be considered just compensation. And so the problem is one with the compensation scheme and secondly it's what type of compensation is eventually given. And so the courts have said that in addition to the compensation, miners can sue gold mining companies to get that additional compensation to make it fair. And this is the litigation that's currently underway. Mm. Now, Tabang, of course, as Sanka Gender, you are um, supporting these families. For people who are listening right now who would want to know more about the work that you're doing and, of course, they're looking for greater insight into this particular case and the silicosis and what it's all about, is there a website that they can go on, uh, just very briefly, that they can check? Yes, we've produced a number of videos, fact sheets, um, opinion pieces in in newspapers. Um, So if they want to access any of that material, it's available on our website, www.sonkegenderjustice.co.za. That is Tabang Bua, Policy and Development Fellow at Sonke Gender Justice, talking to Zikona Miso. The South African Institute of Race Relations says that despite the damaging vitriol so often found on social media, race relations in South Africa remain sound. The IRR's comprehensive field survey of public opinion and racial issues shows that only 3% of South Africans see racism as a serious unresolved problem. Most are far more more concerned about unemployment, poor service delivery, crime and education. This report and transformation forms the first of a three-part release ahead of the 2017 State of the Nation Address this Thursday. More from Gwen Gwenya, Chief Operating Officer at the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IR fully supports racial transformation and that anybody who does not would be anti-poor and and anti-progress. But what we believe is that the moment that you have an education system and economy that works, you will have racial transformation. So there's no need to have explicit targets because inclusion into the broader economy is what will naturally happen as access is improved. And we think that the gains that have been made thus far, and this is where we admit there have been significant gains, have been made because of the opening up of access since 1994 and not because there are any racial quotas or racial targets in place. So what happened post-94 was that people who were previously denied opportunity into the labor market, you now had everyone being able to apply and you know, be, be, in, be in occupations of their choice. And you also had opening up of schools that were previously closed to, to certain people. So the result of greater access to education and the opening up of the job market has indeed created a small and rising black middle class and this is the figures, and we believe this is the driver of the figures that we're seeing and the, the improvements that we're seeing. But once you start looking at the drivers of, of, of transformation, which are education outcomes, economic growth that's coupled with job creation, and also ensuring that we have an adequate safety net, when you start looking at those drivers, you begin to understand that we are falling behind. The Institute uh, states that despite the number of racial slurs that we've been seeing in the past, and especially last year uh, on social media in South Africa, race relations in the country remain sound. What does then what we see on social media reflect of the state of racial transformation in the country? So, of course, 2016 was a particularly tumultuous year in South Africa with regards to race relations, largely driven by comments that were 
that were made on social media. So we wanted to get to the bottom of this and find out, are race relations really as bad as social media and these reports would make us think? So we conducted a survey that is not quite annual, but we have conducted on a regular basis since 2000. And we asked the same questions because it then allows us to establish a trend. Mm. And one of the most insightful questions was the question that asked, if you do notice racism in your daily life, in what ways do you notice it? And of course, one of the options was to highlight that, well, in fact, I've experienced no racism in any shape or form. And 72% of respondents indicated that. So that's quite a large number. But the effect of social media and the the, the manner in which, you know, these kind of um, controversial scenarios are given airtime or given space in the media does have an effect because a different question asked participants, have the race relations since 94, have they improved? Have they stayed the same? Have they become worse? And only 54% say they have improved. So how can it be that 54% of people think race relations have improved and yet 72% report never having experienced racism? Those numbers to me to me seem to contradict each other. Surely if you've never experienced racism, then you should also feel that race relations have improved. Mm. Mm. So what we think that gap represents is a gap between perception and people's actual lived experiences or their actual own experiences. So there's a perception out there that, although it hasn't happened to me, racism is happening somewhere to someone. It's just I haven't experienced it, but I'm certain it still exists. What are then the general sentiments of the public in as far as addressing issues of race is concerned in the country? What do they think could be the most effective of methods to use to fully address this issue? Well, essentially a lot of people seem to buy into the narrative that race relations are strongly tied to economic prosperity and that much of the political stability we see is people who feel they've left behind by this prosperous or this, this, this African narrative of, you know, a post-democratic and prosperous society. And the more we bring a lot more people into that narrative and a lot more people are included in, in prosperity, then we feel that race relations will stabilize. Much of the rhetoric that is out there around white monopoly capital, etc., at their core are really economic arguments. So we need to start seeing a real commitment, and we hope that this will kind of utterances we will see in the State of the Nation address is a real commitment going forward to not having these, you know, smoke and mirrors where we try and deflect what the real issues are and saying race relations need to improve or the problem is white monopoly capital, but that we really start to look at our economy critically and our education system, which obviously provides the pipeline for future economic growth. And I hope that the, you know, the President will outline a clear agenda in terms of that and not have much scapegoating as we've seen in the past. This Thursday, President Jacob Zuma will be having um, his State of the Nation address. Are there any particular issues on race that you are hoping that he, he touches on? Well, as we say, we don't think there's much to be done about race issues directly, but that there is a concession that the reason why we, if there are any racial issues, is largely due to 
economic imbalances and many people being left out of the supposedly prosperous rainbow nation that we now live in post-1994. A lot of people have been left behind in that dream. And for many years we've talked about structural change in the economy, about improving our educational outcomes without much indication that we're really headed in that direction. So those are things we need to hear from the president in the mm. State of the Nation address. A mm. broad plan for that will be then further you know, highlighted and, and delved into in the budget speech, but at least the, the, the first steps towards a, a, a structural reform plan in terms of the economy, and then also to speak about how we will improve educational outcomes. And we hope we won't hear much about pinning it on poor race relations or pinning it on white monopoly capital, which we think are really just buffers for the real debate that needs to take place. That is the voice of Gwen Gwenya. She is the Chief Operating Officer at the South African Institute of Race Relations, and she was in conversation there with Komoto Mopolane. 1932 Central African Time, it's Channel Africa One if you want to follow us on Twitter and engage us on any of the information that we have right here on Channel Africa. Now, the South African and Lesotho Ministries of Home Affairs have finally closed the Lesotho Special Permits application process. The initiative started last year and already had two deadline extensions due to the low number of applicants. The special permits are aimed to legalize the Basutu nationals who are living, studying and working in South Africa illegally. The Lesotho Director of National Identity and Civil Registry, Dumelo Rabulete, says those who did not take advantage of the initiative will face the full might of the law. Historically, Basotho have worked in various sectors of the economy in the Republic. But in recent years, we have seen a number of Basotho in sectors as domestic workers in agriculture, in construction, and some even venturing in small businesses in the Republic. The challenge was that the existing Immigration Act in the, in the Republic did not al- allow Basotho to get the requisite permit, be it business permit in those sectors and work permit as well as formal sector or in the agricultural sector. And so that became a huge challenge, not only for the Sutu government, but also for the Republic, because now a lot of them would be arrested and deported to Lesotho. And it was in that context that the two governments decided to come up with um, an instrument that will regularize Basutu in the Republic. So the applications were open for the whole year because of the extensions. What were the challenges that made the two ministries extend the deadlines? The period has been extended on two occasions. One was that the mechanism through which people were expected to apply were a bit challenging to them. That's one because it was an online-based process. But secondly, in the beginning, there were a number of our people were skeptical. They were not sure whether or not this is a genuine attempt on the part of government, having been deported, having been arrested on so many accounts previously. So they were also reluctant. There was that wait-and-see approach that many of them adopted. But what we also emerge as we move forward, as we build confidence, as people begin to come forth, we also know that, that now the challenging thing was for them to get letters of proof of employment. Their employers were reluctant to give them letters proving that they have engaged an illegal immigrant because that was a condition for them to get a permit. So that number of challenges that led to extensions in not only once but twice. So after two deadline extensions, there are those who didn't pay for their application and those who applied but did not finish the application process. What will happen to those people? 
Regrettably, the cut-off date, as was communicated to Basutu, was that the end of December 31st, they must all have at least pay, even if one didn't have a letter proving that they're working or a letter from school or a letter from proving that they're running business. The conditions were relaxed and they were asked to ensure that at the bare minimum, they pay by the end of December 31st. However, what we have also noted was that many of them failed to pay by the cut-off date. And so what it means is they have missed the deadline. But for those who managed to pay, before December 31st, they have been given a grace period for three months to ensure that they submit all outstanding supporting documents. So those who didn't manage to pay, what's going to happen to them? Those who didn't manage to pay, then it means we are going back to square one, which is they so wish to cross and visit relatives to South Africa, then they will be expected not to overstay. If they do, then they will have to regrettably face the full might of the law. So what are the consequences? The consequences are if they are found to be working without the work pen, they will then be arrested and deported to Lesotho. Those are the painful consequences. We never thought that we would have people who would allow themselves to go that route. But we still appeal to them that those, at least those that paid, to ensure that they do everything in their power and submit the remaining supporting documents, complete their applications, so that by 31st of March, they have done all that is required of them. That is Dumelo Rabolete, who is the Lesotho Director of National Identity and Civil Registry, talking to Nosi Zuma. The South African Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries received a diagnostic report from the Agricultural Research Council Plant Protection Research Institute, which forms, which confirms rather that armyworms have been positively identified from samples collected in the Limbobo province. Morgeta Ramasodi, Deputy Director General responsible for agricultural production, health and food safety at the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, explains. Well, armyworm is a pest that has got many plants that it feeds on, but majorly it's around maize, wheat, potatoes, and groundnuts. And it devastates this by eating the leaves of these plants and therefore not allowing them to go on to producing more food. So the impact that the pest would have if it infests any area is that it will greatly diminish the yield that one expects from the crops. So what is the cause of this uh, fall armyworm? You would know that pests are distributed all over the world. They are pests that are not prevalent in other parts of the world. Until 2016, the fall armyworm was not present in Africa. And sometime last year, there were media reports of this pest being in Nigeria and then coming down into areas like Zambia and Zimbabwe from media reports, and it then came to South Africa. The cause up to now is unknown, but I think what we should be dealing with is how do we ensure that we contain the pest and eradicate it if possible. So could it be from... uh some grain that have been imported from somewhere? Look, there may be multiple sources in terms of how the pest came in, and I think that all countries that are involved are still investigating the possible source. And at this stage, I would think that if we speculate, then it becomes very difficult. But what we know from the scientific research that we are having is that it's also a migratory pest. 
once it establishes within a continent, then it has got the ability in terms of this biology to move and fly long distances up to 2,000 kilos away from its place of establishment. As you say, is it an airborne pest? It is not an airborne pest. It is an insect. It is a moth. So it goes through the four stages in terms of its metamorphosis. It goes through the label stage, it goes through pupa, it goes into adult, including then the eggs that are being laid before going to labor. So you've got the four stages that are there for it to grow. So the adult stage, which is the mouth, is the one that flies. So the movement would be it reaching adult stage and then moving because it can lay quite a number of eggs or up to 1,000 eggs being laid. What are the conducive uh, environment for this pest to manifest itself? I think the temperature plays a role. Your conditions in terms of temperature, your warm temperatures, it would also require to have a very good vegetation. So it would be mostly your summer, autumn areas where you have got good plantations that they can fit on or even a vegetation that they can fit on. So that would be very good for them to then go on to a devastation. What measures uh, would be taken by the countries, let's say, on the continent as well as in Southern Africa to try and deal with this uh, spread of this uh, fall armyworm? In Africa, through the Food and Agriculture Organization, there is a workshop of scientists that would be hosted in Zimbabwe mid-February, and it will involve all the members that are here within SADC. And I think one of the discussion points would be coming up with mechanisms on how to deal with invasive pests in Africa. And I am aware that each and every country within the continent is having mechanisms, integrated pest management that they are implementing to deal with this pest. And I am of the opinion that during that period of time when the scientists are in Zimbabwe, there would be comparison in terms of best practices that you are having in Africa and coming up with a comprehensive plan on how to deal with invasives in Africa, not only limited to the fall and when. On individual countries, there are programs. For instance, in South Africa, we have just finished registering pesticides that we will use for it, and we are also embarking on awareness campaigns to ensure that farmers detect the outbreaks early so that we can be effective in terms of our control measures. As you say that this is an invasive pest in Africa, where does it emanate from? Currently we are having this pest in Central America, we are having it also in South of America, but in most instances those areas you also find it in the U.S. So as I have indicated earlier, we will not speculate where it comes from, but the original in terms of its place of origin is America. We've had a serious drought last year and uh, there were some imports of some grain from let's say countries like in Latin America and so forth. So wouldn't it be one of the causes that have led to this invasive pest manifesting itself on the continent? Yes. As I indicated earlier on, we may speculate in terms of how the pest came into Africa, but that is a point which needs to be clearly dispelled in terms of how it entered 
And I think we should leave it to an investigative process that would say how could the pest have entered into Africa and not endure the speculation because as we speculate, we might even go to areas that are not really within that framework. So I am of the opinion that authorities that are in countries where the pest first manifested are currently working on it. I know that from a South African perspective, we also evaluating how it could have entered into the South African shores. But our strong suspicion from a South African point is that it was born and flew to South Africa from the south of the continent. Are there any form of pesticides that would be able to deal with this invasive pest? Yes, as previously indicated from our side as the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries and as specified by our minister yesterday, Minister Senzunizekwan, we have registered two products that have got active ingredients that would assist us in terms of the control. But the trick here is to catch the pest during its early level stages. We are also exploring other pesticides within the range that can still be used and we are also calling on all pesticide companies to register those pesticides that they think would be effective against the pest. It's very important to note that pesticides are not the only things that we can use for this. We're still also exploring other ways of controlling, including biological means of control. As you use pesticides, we should be aware that people should be using pesticides with a clear notion that we shouldn't have a problem in the latter stages where we have got food safety issues that will emanate because of pesticide residues. So that kind of balance where we use the recommendations as per the leaflet that you find in the pesticide is very important. If this fall armyworm becomes resistant to some of the pesticides that have been used, does it mean that uh, we are in for a very long time food security situation that is not protected? From a perspective of discussing a pest control, I don't think that chemical control is the only control that is here with the pest. The pest had previously manifested itself in other areas, and therefore there would be, at this stage, some of the controls that are there. As I was reading through the literature yesterday, I could see a frog that was used as a biological control. So it's all not doom and gloom in terms of chemical control, but I know that within the chemical control area, There's a lot of research in terms of improving the chemicals that are there from different companies. Megetsa Ramasodi is the Deputy Director General responsible for agricultural production, health and food safety at the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries talking to Wandile Kalipa. It's time for Economic News with Wandile with Wissani Matabula Ratha. In economics news, uh, this hour, Standard Chartered Zimbabwean business has restricted uh, the use of a Visa debit card outside of the country. This is a sign that foreign currency shortages are worsening despite the introduction of a bond currency last year. A shortage of cash has gripped uh, Zimbabwe, forcing banks to set withdrawal limits and delay foreign payments because accounts held by local banks overseas have been heavily depleted of foreign currency. The Southern African nation started using the US dollar in 2009 after ditching its own currency when the hyperinflation soared to
to more than 500 billion percent at the height of an economic crisis. And board chairperson of South Africa's power utility, Ben Gubani, says that the Denton's report, which was commissioned to investigate some of the causes of operational challenges, was not released to the public last year as it would have put pressure on the company to implement some of the recommendations. Denton's is a global law firm specializing in corporate law. He says there are individuals who have been named who needed to be protected before it was released. Gubane was addressing the media at a briefing at ESCOM's headquarters in Sunning Hill in Johannesburg. Gubane says the investigation cost ESCOM 1.5 million US dollars. The executive team was then tasked with the technical implementation under the strict supervision of the Audit and Risk Committee. A full implementation plan was then developed with clear targets and tightly monitored milestones that were incorporated into the turnaround strategy presented to the Minister of Public Enterprises and the Minister of Finance, as this formed part of the conditions relating to the equity injection provided by government to ESCOM. South Africans will have to fork out uh, up to 14% more for medical aid contributions this year. Most open medical aid schemes will charge their members substantial increases because many more people checked into hospital last year, increasing medical inflation. It has also emerged that the medical aid schemes have been detecting millions of US dollars in fraudulent transactions with a discovery nailing down $40 million last year alone. Discovery Health Deputy CEO Ryan Noah. It is escalating every year. It's difficult to say whether the fraud is increasing or whether we're just getting much better at detecting it. Uh, We certainly do believe at Discovery that we're picking up the majority of the fraud. Uh, one never knows what the iceberg looks like under the sea, but, uh, you know, it is a concern and we work hard to recover all of those amounts. French carmaker Pedro's plan uh, to resume a car assembly in Kenya after more than a decade will help raise total output by 43% in three years to 10,000 vehicles. This according to figures released by Kenya's Motor Industry Association. The East African nation undermined what was a thriving local assembly industry in the 1990s with policies that encouraged cheap second-hand imports. It is now seeking to attract uh, manufacturers back to help create jobs and support growth growth. Peugeot, which closed its local plant in 2002, will now put together two models in Kenya after Volkswagen took a similar step last year. And Uganda's economy will expand by 5.2% in the fiscal year 2017-2018 after slipping to 5% in 2016-2017 fiscal year, helped by infrastructure spending and foreign investment in the oil industry. After years of delays, uh, the East African nation aims to start exploring oil in 2020 when construction of a pipeline through neighboring Tanzania is due to be completed. The award of oil production and exploration licenses in 2016 could accelerate foreign direct investment inflows, infrastructure development, employment, and the development of local industries. Looking now at the markets, uh, the dollar at 13.29, South African rands at uh, 10.34, Botswana Pula and 9.85, Zambian Kwacha, also at 0.80 to the British, British pound and 0.92 against the euro. 
The commodities market gold trading at $1,232. Platinum is at $1,008 per fan ounce. Brent crude oil at $55.93 per barrel. That's your economics news. And it's time for sports news now with Neto Chamane. Good evening, sport fans, with the latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour. I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with cricket news. The fourth ODI between South Africa and Sri Lanka is underway in Cape Town. South Africa won the toss and opted to bet on a wicket expected to yield abundant runs. With the five-match series already wrapped up, after South Africa went 3-0 up on Sunday, the home side gave left-arm wrist spinner Tabraz Shaimzi his first outing of the series at Newlands. He and leg spinner Imran Tahir are providing the hosts with the two specialist spin options. All-rounder Wayne Panel also returned, with Andy Lepetl and Chris Morris left out. SA captain Faf Duplessis reached his eighth ODI century in his partnership with AB de Villas, who made a half century earlier in the match. They also made 121 runs from 108 balls. South Africa ended on 367 for five after 50 overs. Australia's cricketers have demanded a review of performance related to pay for contracted players who stand to take another financial hit after an understrength one-day international team was defeated by New Zealand last week. Selectors have rested top players for one-day series to cope with the demands of packed international schedule and without the team's best batsman, David Warner. The tourists lost 2-0 to New Zealand. Frontline pace bowlers Michel Stark and Josh Hazelwood were also rested from the one day series in South Africa in November and depleted site were whitewashed 5-0 by the host. With compensation banished by performance bonuses for winning series, Australia's cricketers can find their pay packets diminished when the teammates are arrested due to overlaps in the schedule. On to football news. South Africans' under-20 national men's team Amajita are back in camp for the second training camp in preparation for the 2017 CAF Under-20 Africa Cup of Nations, which will be held in Zambia from the 26th of February to the 12th of March 2017 in Lusaka and Ndola. South Africa is in Group B alongside Cameroon, Senegal and Sudan and will be based in Ndola while Group A consists of hosts Zambia, Egypt, Mali and Guinea and will play their opening matches in Lusaka. The top four teams of the tournament will qualify for the 2017 edition of the FIFA Under-20 World Cup to be hosted in South Korea in May. South Africa's team head coach Tabo Sinong is excited with the number of players who reported for camp on Monday night, though goalkeeper Darren Johnson of Ajax Cape Town has been released due to a minor injury sustained in the first training camp. Meanwhile, Supersport United goalkeeper Mundlim Boto has been replaced by Mamelor Sundowns Kulegane Kubeka, while leading striker Luther Singh will join the team later this week. Zamarambuan, who plays in Israel, has now been replaced by Masilake Potlongo from Ajax Cape Town. Nigeria Super Eagles coach General Rowe, who was in Gabon to monitor the country's opponents in the forthcoming World Cup, 
and the Cameroon 2019 Nations Cup has allayed fears over the threat posed by the indomitable lions to Nigeria's Russia 2018 ambitions. Nigeria and Cameroon are in Group B of the Russia 2018 World Cup qualifying series with the Super Eagles on top of the lock after two games. Nigeria has six points to Cameroon's two and both teams will meet back-to-back in August. Since Cameroon, against all odds, defeated Egypt to win the Nations Cup, pundits have raised the alarm over the indomitable lions' threat to Nigeria's ambitions. But Raw on Monday declared that Cam- Cameroon's Afcon victory will not in any way affect Nigeria's chances of booking the ticket for the Russia 2018 World Cup. In athletics news, Russia will remain suspended from international athletics and is unlikely to be reinstated before November. According to the head of IAAF Task Force, Rune Andersen, Russia had been presented with a list of demands before it could be allowed to compete again. He told reporters he did not expect Russia to be readmitted before November this year, meaning its athletes will not be able to compete in the world championships in August. The roadmap that I outlined here now and to the uh, council earlier on clearly states that there will be no reinstatement until Rusada is functioning. Uh, And there was one milestone in May where they will start conducting testing and there will be presumably if everything goes in accordance with the plan, be a full reinstatement by November um, 2017, which means that Russia as a nation or Rusev is not recommended by us to be reinstated until that time. And finally, Russia's Athletics Federation was banned in November 2015 after an independent world anti-doping agency, WADA Probe, exposed state-sponsored doping on a massive scale. The suspension was upheld last year, ruling almost the Russian track and field athletes out of the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Despite these difficulties, IAAF President Sebastian Coe remains positive about Russian involvement in athletics going forward. Every waking hours that these guys are focused on this they are trying you know meter by meter to get to a situation where we get russian athletes back from clean secure systems thank you for tuning to channel africa for channel africa sport i'm neto and ito chamani This is Africa Digest. Nineteen fifty-seven Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. Somalis prepare for a crucial presidential election tomorrow. Kenyan authorities urge to work with the doctors for a solution to the strike. And that drops up Africa Digest for today. For myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Mohamed, technical producer Wiseman Mangaile, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. And on Twitter, we're on channelafrica. Africa one will leave you with a Tulale 444 by Sauti Sol and Mikasa. Come